welcome to Revolutionary Women. My name is Tess Silverman. Women around the world are constantly creating ways to make a difference in their communities, and today's guest is no exception. My guest today is Shijuade Kadri. Shijuade is the director of diversity for Snapping, the parent company of Snapchat. Prior to joining Snapping, she was the chief advocacy officer for the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Community Center, as well as the Legislative Council for the New York City Council. An alumna of Emory University, Shijuade graduated with a joint degree from the Schools of Law and Public Health. A former defense attorney with Brooklyn Defender Services, Shijuade has significant government relations policy, strategic planning, and stakeholder cultivation and engagement experience. In addition to being the director of diversity for SNAP Inc., Shijuade is the founder of Compass Strategies Consulting, which partners with organizations and community leaders to create effective management practices and powerful strategies for transformation. She has legislative and organizational policy drafting experience and leadership and executive coaching practice across multiple interests and sectors, which informs how she tailors her guidance and approach for each client. Shijuade has worked with all levels of government, for-profit and non-profit sectors, striving to ensure that the work being done is thoughtful, innovative, and inclusive with an explicitly intersectional lens. She centers her work from a black, queer, feminist perspective, believing that when all of those needs are engaged and addressed, all will benefit from the outcome. A recipient of multiple awards for her work, she is also a sought-after speaker, panelist, and moderator. Shijuade resides in Atlanta with her wife and children. Good morning, Shiju. How are you? This Welcome to Revolutionary Woman. Good morning. Good morning. I'm wonderful. How are you? It's great to be here. Thank you. I'm, yeah, I'm good. And I'm sorry to catch you so early, but, uh, you know, I really wanted to get you in here um, before um, the day was was done. So for those who don't know anything about you, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, sure. Um, So I am currently at least in Atlanta, Georgia, and Mm -hmm. I uh, am the principal and sort of founder of a consulting firm, Compass Strategies Consulting. I do a lot of policy strategy and sort of um, DEI-related work. And then I'm also um, the director of diversity strategy at Snapchat. I'm sorry. Or rather, we say Snap. Oh, okay. Wow, okay. Um, So you said you grew up in Atlanta, and your parents were um, emigrated from, your dad was from Nigeria, and your mom is from Trinidad, correct? Yes. So... And I found this interesting. So your dad has a PhD and your mom is a physician. And one of the things that struck me was the work ethic your parents instilled in you and your sisters. And, and yeah. I love the mantra you heard growing up, which was work hard and then work harder. Um, I mean, did you follow that mantra going up and do you still follow it to this day? <laughs> I think that if you were to ask, um, you know, my friends and my wife I'd like to think I like work hard play harder but I definitely think I work hard work harder oh, and then play um <laughs> I you know my parents were um I'm just deeply deeply grateful for their sort of modeling at home right mm-hmm. and for them it, they worked because they loved what they were doing they felt like they were contributing to sort of a greater good outside of themselves mm-hmm. and I think 
the um, what we saw was a commitment to moving this sort of needle forward for all. And we spoke a lot about, you know, um, affirmation of black identity and also being um, all sort of girls at home, the power of like gender identity and then mm -hmm. wanting us to really feel like we could take anything on. Mm -hmm. And if we worked hard and, and enjoyed it, right? Like enjoyed what we were studying, enjoyed mm -hmm. the learning process that that could translate into sort of any number of measurable like kind of positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. So for us, it was really, my parents definitely worked, but we had each other to play with all the time, which was awesome. My, you know, my parents came to, you know, the school recitals and the, the softball games. And That's we just awesome. had, um, yeah, I just feel extremely sort of grateful for that grounding. Mm -hmm. And um, there were no delusions, right? Like my parents um, through ups and downs and sort of different opportunities that they pursued, let us know like this is actually really hard or this is going really well. Mm -hmm. And they brought us along for the sort of fruits of their labor. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the key takeaways for me was like, here's what I can build. And it feels good, right? Mm -hmm. Like it feels mm -hmm. good to do these things. And so I think um, I have been fortunate as sort of a working professional to do work that I really feel sort of mission aligned with and driven by. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hard not to pour yourself into that when you really care and you want it, when you know it's more than just you. Oh, of course, so, yeah. Um, yeah, so I would definitely say I work hard and work harder, but um, <laughs> I'm getting better, I think. I think I'm getting better at just recognizing I can't pour from an empty cup yes. so that rest, right, rest yeah. and taking care of whatever that looks like for me, mm -hmm. right? Because it looks different for everybody, but right. that rest is as critical mm -hmm. in this work as is the actual sort of work. That's wonderful, though, because they really, you know, created... Um, this environment of yes, you work and you work harder, but you can also play and 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 rest, and it's pretty well rounded, which is pretty amazing. So that's really it's very yeah. awesome. And okay, so another quote I love this from your parents that that I could relate to was, "We want you to be successful, but you your responsibility goes beyond you." Um, can yeah. you tell me how that quote has affected you? Pretty much, you know, in your professional life, if not personal. I think that it's um, it's a cornerstone of who I am. <laughs> so um, my parents really, in in that belief, were like, uh, "Here are all the ways that we can give back." So sometimes it's of time, it's of your resource. They were actually, I think, when I reflect upon it, really careful to make sure we didn't. It, I, that financial contributions are important, but weren't the thing. They mm -hmm. thought that the most valuable thing was your time, your energy, um, and deferring to who we're in support of, right? So mm -hmm. if it's like, I don't know, we used to do things like um, making sandwiches at, you know, the homeless shelter, for example, or, mm. or sorting through donations and um, offering like clothing and such to like women and children shelters, like, or parts cleanups, mm -hmm. right? Or, mm -hmm. It could have also just been service in our own sort of familial community, like going to help, I don't know, clean up someone's backyard mm -hmm. or, work, mm -hmm. you know, like those kinds of um, uh, more life administrative tasks where mm -hmm. they were like, you have this skill, so you're going to do this thing. Right. And I think that was really um, important because I part of it was like they wanted us to know that our labor is of service to others, that mm -hmm. our attention, our time. But um, as I got older, 
you know, that was, I could label that as like, oh, that's charity mm. to some degree. Cause it's like someone needs something now, mm. I don't know, file, sorted, clothes, home, right. food. Right. So that need needs to be met. But as I got older, the way it sort of, I don't know, grew was I wanted to know why. Yeah. <laughs> why is there such this, you know, equitable right. distribution of resources and who made those decisions? And right. um, how come those decisions still stand? And like, we know about some of the more twisted history in the U.S. that we have and like, mm-hmm. have we rectified that? And that really grounded me in a justice narrative. So mm. to that, I think justice, seeking justice and equity has mm-hmm. been the common thread in my personal and professional life. Right. And it absolutely started with my parents sort of saying, yeah. your responsibility is greater than you. I love that. I love that. And I mean, so were you always attracted to um, fighting for social justice? I mean, coming from your background and from your environment, was this always, I mean, so since then it got, it, you kind of like said, okay, this is what I want to do. No, yeah. I think that I didn't know, I didn't know what it would translate into. I just knew that it had to be for another, mm, okay. right? So um, I've always wanted to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been told, you know, I had the gift of gab, but really when I was a kid, it was like, all the adults being like, I will pay you to stop talking. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was just very loquacious. Um, I loved reading. You know, I loved learning. I loved conversation. Uh-huh. Um, and so I just knew that um, one way that I could use that was the law. And I didn't really know, like, what that looked like. Right. Until, of course, I was a little bit older. And yeah, I mean, what so, was awesome. Well, I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. Continue. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say that it, what shaped it for me was the fellowship that I did in undergrad that mm. just introduced me that, you know, lawyers don't have to be, you know, corporate. I knew that wasn't me. I didn't, I knew I didn't want to like, although I liked the clear flexible version of wearing a suit and being a quote unquote lawyer, I didn't, you know, I didn't feel compelled by doing something that felt, mm. Mm. Um, doesn't feel connected to community. That's okay. Well, yeah. Okay. So I read that you graduated from Emory with a law degree and your first job was for the Brooklyn Defender <laughs> Services um, yeah. in the child welfare practice. Uh, so how is that experience working that with the child is, welfare? Yeah. Yeah. I say that it's um, it, in the most sort of like non-religious way possible. I think it's God's work. And I mm. say that because um, it is a system. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just to be really frank, I... Um, think it's important to have direct and conscientious communication. So I'm going to name the things that I have seen and experienced and studied, mm-hmm. which is like the way systemic racism mm-hmm. is embedded in every single step we take. And as a, a black person, as mm-hmm. a queer person, as a black queer woman, mm-hmm. you walk into a courtroom of um, primarily white male judges, mm. uh, majority sort of um white they're not they're the equivalent of like prosecutors in this case that's really just um the city's council mm-hmm. and then you have defenders for the children who are usually of a similar demographic and then you have the public defender in there mm-hmm. and we you enter a courtroom with primarily uh, black and latinx clients overwhelmingly women um because it's public defense they are usually um 
low wealth individuals mm-hmm. and you walk in and you have all of these people who actually don't know the family but you know they've they've watched tv shows they've mm-hmm. been in the community mm-hmm. they've made observations they've made tons of prejudicial biases the moment my client comes in mm-hmm. because they're like i've seen this before so yeah. it you essentially spend the majority of your time trying to humanize mm-hmm. your client mm-hmm. who is a parent or yeah. a caretaker um, to say, like, here are the decisions I made around caring for my child. And you know this as a parent. Mm-hmm. Parenting is fairly subjective, yep. and people are, in, are incredibly judgmental about it. Mm-hmm. So I named sort of race and gender in there because it is my experience was often that you had the decision makers who didn't have any shared lived experience, had not know what it was like to financially struggle, didn't know what it was like to go to failing school systems, didn't know what it was like not to trust government um, officials and law enforcement in your home mm-hmm. didn't have any of that mm-hmm. and then just really like from the bench shaking their fingers wow. you messed up you wow. are a good parent I'm taking your kid I know better wow. and what we know about the foster care system is that it's overwhelmingly um sort of populated with black and latinx children they have they spend more time in foster care the wow. emotional mental health and physical tools mm-hmm. are erasable Uh, and unerasable i'm sorry and so it was an incredibly difficult job because i realized really quickly to a young lawyer's mm -hmm. eyes the law didn't apply Mm -hmm. (laughs) um the law was never designed to support my clients it was not designed to affirm them they didn't they didn't help create it they Mm -hmm. were just subject to it so when you do that kind of work and you're like but wait you know it's like this first kind of um your ideals are shot down. Mm-hmm. Like, the law is going to help, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're like, mm-hmm. no, it's actually nothing to do with the law. It's everything about um, wow. relationships uh-huh. and the politic of trying to convince people that your client deserves to make decisions that they think are best for their family. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. or if there really are concerns, mm-hmm. I want the city and the state to say, here's the support. Right. Not. The first response of we're going to take children. Right. We're going to take the children first, yeah. investigate later. Yeah. Um, and that it was so. To be honest, it was um, what inspired me and gave me the fire in my belly. It was like when you just see that kind of inequities day after day, mm-hmm. you can't help mm-hmm. but want to like fight for some semblance of justice. And oh, the justice yeah. sometimes though is tainted, right? It's right. not usually like. I don't know. You can't undo that harm, but what mm-hmm. you can do is try to um, provide some level of support and follow for your client, if anything, to make sure they know they have a voice mm-hmm. in that space. Yeah. Um, but it was demoralizing to see that over oh, yeah. and over again because you want to, you know, you want to trust some systems, and then you right. can see that they aren't for you. So yeah, yeah, and to and to actually, you know, what you were saying is to actually have your client there, and before they can even say anything they've already judged them and yep. it's become a punitive thing as, as opposed to be a supportive thing. you know they, they've it's exactly. more they're punishing the, your client before they even exactly. like figure out what is going on behind closed doors and, and nobody knows yeah until your client will say okay look this is what's going on and and it's unfortunate because i i agree i i think that you know every person it's a person deserves support deserves you know some sort of um i, I guess 
not leniency, but justice, definitely, you know, if it's, if yeah. it's, you know, because you don't know what's going on behind for them. So, wow, that's got to be. And just the cycles, yeah, yeah. the cycles that are perpetuated. I have clients who grew up in foster care, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. and aren't given my skills mm-hmm. um, to develop in or the access that they need. And mm-hmm. so then, from, you know, they become parents. And they're having kids while they're in foster care. Mm. And the first reaction is really guilt. Yeah. And then prove to me, not innocence, but prove to me this individual decision maker that I think you're good enough to have your own children back. Mm. And who who on their worst parenting day mm-hmm. can do that? Yeah. Right? Yeah, to someone who sure. knows nothing about you. It's just, it is... Um, so it's a system I often will say, you know, if you ask me to go back to court tomorrow, I would, mm. uh, because I just feel that passion and connected to it. But what I realized is that I could only be as good a lawyer mm-hmm. as I had access to good laws right. and sort of made a decision that I yeah. wanted to figure out mm-hmm. how to make better laws. Mm-hmm. Is that why you got involved with policy? Absolutely. Okay. I, um, I, my sort of, um, I call it like community lawyering or some mm, social mm. justice perspective right. was always grounded in the sense that those who are closest to the problem are mm-hmm. closest to the solution. Right. So I felt like I needed to be in the trenches in order to be able to think about yeah. what, you know, how to advise that space. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I always wanted to do policy work, although I was, you know, happy being a public defender. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I said, you know, when you start to realize like, I'm just spinning my wheels here mm-hmm. because the law Right. doesn't provide any options so i um made the leap to sort of working for the new york city council on that, a whole yeah. host of legislation yeah and policy issues and that was just you know um there's that old sort of cartoon about like how a bill comes along and like mm. i love i studied poly sky like i loved mm-hmm. sort of civics in high school um and what blew my mind about that space was working for the city council to serve the city at the time of around 8 million people mm-hmm. um, was an honor. Mm-hmm. And then when I saw what it took to actually get sort of legislation over the line and mm-hmm. how personal, mm-hmm. <laughs> how personal the, the politic was, yeah. but it wasn't always, again, yeah. what's in the best interest of the millions of residents mm-hmm. of New York. Mm-hmm. Um, that sometimes it was like, we need to get this done by midnight. That's the deadline. Mm-hmm. And so what, what's the compromise here? And sort of the compromise was the most critical component of a, a bill. Mm-hmm. And that was really um, just understanding how inside baseball was played. That was really what I took from that space. And mm-hmm. making, of course, you know, understanding how electives work, how um, career government officials work, mm-hmm. how the most senior folks making the decisions need to, if they don't share the same grounded belief um, in how to serve mm-hmm. community, yeah. that's, that's ultimately what informs the law the most sometimes. Wow. Um, so really interesting, uh, sort of made great relationships there. And it's also awesome to see a lot of my colleagues that I worked with at the time are now elected officials. So that makes oh, me feel better. Actually. That's <laughs> like, awesome. That's great. Yeah, it's really awesome to wow. see people just who uh, have deep respect. Yeah. Yeah. Really and well and they're, they're making a difference that way. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. Okay. So is that, so from there, you made a leap to tech. I mean, was that something that you wanted to do 
eventually anyway? No, I never. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I never thought about it, to be So I will say that um, one of the things that really came to light for me during my time at the council is this thing of, you know, we make plans and God laughs kind of thing. Where I was, mm. I'm like fairly type A, right? Like, <laughs> here's what I'm going to do. I'm mm-hmm. going to work here for five years. And right. if I make a transition to this, right? Uh-huh. And um, it, my time at the council informed so much of um of sort of humbling me to the process that mm-hmm. like if i can remain connected to my integrity mm-hmm. and the values that i hold and the way i want to show up as a resource for mm-hmm. the social justice work that matters to me mm-hmm. then i can be open to whatever possibilities and, and opportunities come to me and that's how i have tried to remain since then. So it's how I moved on to the LGBT center mm-hmm. and eventually became the chief advocacy officer. Mm-hmm. And similarly, um, when I got this outreach from um, SNAP, mm-hmm. it was a, I was not looking sort of at the time mm-hmm. and I was just, I um, was really just living my authentic sort of values around diversity, equity, and inclusion and the work that I did in my consulting work mm-hmm. um, and speaking and then I just, what I loved about it is that I would have never even thought about um, hmm. making that leap. And if anything, mm-hmm. you know, a few of my friends were like, I thought you were, you're a lawyer. Why aren't you like working in-house, like as in-house counsel for them? Or right. you do policy work. So why aren't you in a policy team, right. you know? And I was like, oh, it's just not even, SNAP has been so compelling mm. because they are a young mm-hmm. company, yep. have tremendous reach mm-hmm. and over and over in each interview, I was just so taken aback by the clear intention to want to do this work and then the sort of wanting to know how, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, I want to change the world um, mm-hmm. and how do I do that? And, you know, equity is, we actually don't have any roadmap to equity, right? right? We've never right. really seen it. Yep. We know some things that don't work, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, but it's like, now what do we do? So that I love, you know, strategy and mm. operationalizing things and really connecting folks. So that was appealing. But I just um of a few things that sort of stood out to me. And to be honest, you know, the tech world doesn't you if you read the news, <laughs> it doesn't really mm-hmm. look like it's gonna be the safest, most affirming place for a person who identifies like I do. Mm. But I was able to have those conversations and got really um just honest and thoughtful feedback. Mm-hmm. And I sort of thought of this analogy of, I can teach my four-year-old French, mm-hmm. and he's probably gonna pick it up pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I can also try to teach my 24-year-old French, mm-hmm. and he will get it, but over time. And in my mind, snap to me is like my four-year-old, where it's mm. growing up, mm-hmm. and we can have these really great, um, we can embed this practice and this value system mm-hmm. now right. and then have it be this role model. And that was really appealing to me. Wow. Um, and, you know, and I just, am, I um, am always humbled by the opportunity, but you know, if I'm really being even additionally honest, mm. it was the recruiter who reached out to me who mm-hmm. happens to be, um, well, I don't want to be too identified. She happens to be a woman of color mm-hmm. and that was really important to me. Yeah, <laughs> like we course. could have, a, yeah, like someone who's, who has similar and shared identities and experiences and then can really have a conversation. You yeah. know, I was mm-hmm. like, 
let's just talk about that. And I say it a lot now sort of to our um, people team and how important it is to have a diverse of mm. across many metrics, sure. race, gender identity, disability status, queer yeah. status, immigration, like all of it. Um, because we want to mirror the community, our user community. We want to mirror the world that we want to to mm-hmm. build and that is the most powerful recruitment tool so that was really wow. um i said it to this person and i said it inside the company a few times now like mm-hmm. that was the most important selling point for me to think like okay i'll have a conversation like let's talk to more people huh. um that's interesting yeah. that's great and and so you would so so other than had that recruiter not reached out to you you wouldn't even have yeah. considered like working no. okay okay i wouldn't have looked mm. and, you know i i wouldn't have looked for this type of work because mm-hmm. you know again i keep coming back to identity there's no other way mm. for me to frame the world but i um love the space of equity and justice and i like particularly focusing on the equity and inclusion part because diversity is just who's in the room mm-hmm. and a lot of places just focus on like well um, the room has a thousand pink shirts in it. And so mm-hmm. look, we got two purple shirts mm-hmm. and now it's diverse. And I'm yeah. like, no, no, no. We, right? <laughs> we, we got no, not shirt. quite. Yeah. Not quite. <laughs> and, you know, right. How are we making those two purple shirts? How are we right. valuing that diversity and seeing them with power mm-hmm. and encouraging them to share their perspective and then actually developing and growing them such that mm-hmm. we get to the equity work, which is really what I love, the process. Yes, the of practice. course. Right. The policy so that we don't need purple shirts in the room mm-hmm. to make thoughtful and inclusive decisions. Mm-hmm. And so I say I give that kind of context because I love that work. And I think I, I think that you should be doing equity work no matter where you are, mm-hmm. kind of, no matter what your title is. And my brilliant, brilliant boss at SNAP always says that the EI is sort of not about you don't need this title of director or chief or something, but mm-hmm. you just need the commitment to it mm-hmm. and the actions. And so that has always been part of my practice around it. And I, um, part of the reason I don't think I would have sort of sought this role out was that I was hesitant about being another woman of color mm-hmm. in a diversity role mm-hmm. charged with trying to, quote unquote, like change up systems <laughs> yeah. that I am subject to, you know, right, right. I had been very sort of guarded against it when the conversation had been brought to me before. There's like mm-hmm. in general people being like, do you want this? Are you interested in this? And I was like, ah, but it was, um, mm-hmm. it was truly, truly the conversation. Um, and just the way SNAP was approaching it, they had, had released sort of their workforce data mm-hmm. recently. And, you know, it wasn't, it was just raw. And it wasn't necessarily pretty. And mm. I liked that. I liked yeah. that they weren't trying to hide anything. Right. And that they were like, we want to do better and more. Right. Because and, it, yeah, um, it, it gives room for it gives room for change when it's that exactly. Way. Yeah. Exactly. That kind of authenticity was very appealing to me. So like it was those things that sort of stood out to me in a way that mm. I um wouldn't have felt compelled before. And you know, I've, we've talked about this but I guess a little bit now. The, my entire background is sort of in the social justice, mm-hmm. sort of nonprofit government arena. Mm-hmm. So the idea of even moving to a corporate space more broadly, much less tech, mm-hmm. gave me pause. I was like, am I, <laughs> yeah. am I becoming the man? <laughs> um, I had to have all those, like, you know, those conversations with myself. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh my god! <laughs> but yeah, no, I, it definitely. Um, 
but well, you're I don't not, but, feel that for sure. No, and you're changing the landscape for, you know, you're changing the landscape in tech by your making yeah. sure that your voice is being heard and and the way they're positioning it, it really is like, you know, okay, you can, it's not pretty, but yeah, this is who we are and will you work with us anyway, you know? So right. that's, I think that's, that's very empowering and, and attractive because then you're like, okay, well, you know, there are changes that need to be made and, you know, and if you're good with it, then I'm good with it. So that's really awesome. That's very cool. And, same, same. Oh my gosh. Um, and, you know, so in a way that was like your aha moment when you realized, huh, okay, there's actually room for me in here. And not just because I'm a woman of color, it's because I am who I am. Right. And really that cool. there was, yeah, it was appealing. There was a team, as I mentioned, my, um, the VP of DEI at Stanford, her name is Una King, just brilliant, 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 mm. uh, sort of unmatched person. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity to work with someone of her experience and stature mm -hmm. and, um, I mean, pretty badassery, but just mm. like humble and engaged. I was like, well, it, it was like, if, if she believes snap can do this work, then I definitely want to be there a part of go. this. Yeah. Um, and so that was also really appealing. And just like the team itself is, is mm. um, I say this a few times out, there's an abundance of brilliance. Mm. And I just love that because something in, in my own sort of each career opportunity and choice that I've made, I really thought, you know, what's, What's, what am I interested in? What's good for me? What kind of environment will I be in? Mm -hmm. How will I continue to grow? Mm -hmm. And I think much like our politics right now, there's a lot of polarization of yep. and othering of each other. So like yep. in the nonprofit world, they're like, I can't, you know, I can't go corporate. Mm -hmm. And in the corporate world, they think nonprofits are scrappy and like useless. You know, like mm -hmm. so much judgment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> kind mm -hmm. of like going back to the courtroom, right? Yeah. So much judgment without knowing yes. and without actually engaging. Right. And so I also appreciate being able to kind of bridge, uh, I don't know, build bridges over those assumptions mm -hmm. and sort of help people connect just to each other's humanity mm -hmm. and seeing each other. You right. know, Michelle Obama says in her book, Becoming, something to the uh -huh. effect of um, it's hard to hate up, up close. Mm -hmm. And I so listen true. to that line and like love it. It's true, right? It's, it's so, so easy to other each other. So oh, yeah. I, one thing I appreciate now too is being able to be the non-tech person in the tech space, um, ah. building some of that and learning so much uh -huh. and trying to also say like, here's what, here's what I've learned from outside of the tech space mm -hmm. that I think could be applicable here. Right. Um, so like at this macro level and then at the micro sort of interpersonal level, I get to do that. And it's really, really um, exciting and fun and there's lots of opportunity to do good work so yeah. I yeah I really appreciate it that's so cool I love that oh my gosh okay so um I I saw some videos of you on YouTube and one that struck me <laughs> <laughs> well no I, I thought this was interesting uh, and, and um there's two actually you know one that really was like maddening because this was happening um during the Trump administration in 2018, you were on a BBC World TV speaking mm -hmm. about Trump's desire to roll back gender rights. And they were mm -hmm. talking about Matthew mm -hmm. Shepard. And I was just like, oh, my God, I remember that. That was um, that was really so horrific. I, I mean, mm -hmm. 
when you were in it, I mean, what did you think of, the, of that possibility? And do you think that the treatment of um, queer and trans people trans. Um, yeah. have gotten better since the new administration? Or has it stayed the same? I mean, in your opinion. No, great, great question. I remember that, well, that time and that interview, especially just because <clears throat> when you, it's, I was actually just talking with some girlfriends this morning, actually, about mm. this time that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. And thinking about what our kids are going to say, mm-hmm. what we were going to look back on in another, I don't know, maybe 20 years, and just look back. And I feel like we've had a lot of moments already in our lifetimes about this, but look back and be like, I cannot mm-hmm. believe mm-hmm. <laughs> that these issues were ever debated. Yeah. I just like issues of basic humanity and decency yes. and um, care for another. So, the administration and working in an LGBT space at the time was, it was, um, it's hard to say this, it was um, terrifying, but to the point of like paralysis, mm-hmm. because uh, you actually just don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you just sure. actually just don't know. And you're like, there's no way to get that bad. And right. it gets worse. Right. And you're like, well, it would be crazy if this actually, and then oh, that yeah. crazy happened. Yeah. And it, you know, yeah. um, and it was daily. It, it was it was a daily yes, attack. It was, a, it was like exactly what was going on. I mean, I never knew when I woke up. Okay, what's going to happen today? <laughs> you know, exactly, <sighs> exactly. And it wasn't until you know Biden is still very early in his tenure, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I hold anybody accountable. If you have the privilege to serve, regardless mm-hmm. of political party, I expect you yep. Yep. <laughs> to serve yep. the sort of the entire, I know that only citizens can vote, but I expect service for the residents of the U.S. So I um, won't sort of comment on where I think Biden is yet, but there are things that he's done already that are important. And a lot mm-hmm. of it is just through the undoing, mm-hmm. right? Oh, the reversal sure. of, of <sighs> Trump sort yeah. of uh, limitations on trans folks accessing mm-hmm. health care. You know, like, mm-hmm. just basic, yeah. it blows my mind. And so, yeah. you know, thinking about that time, I remember um, there were a few things that came to mind where they, it was an honor and an, I think a tremendous opportunity to speak on the BBC. Mm-hmm. But I do remember being like, I don't identify as trans. Mm-hmm. And in my, my, in my work, I'm like, I literally encourage folks to center the impacted community first, mm-hmm. to seed the mic, to give up your seat. Yeah. And um, for a number of reasons at that time, just given like the timing of everything, mm-hmm. it, there wasn't an opportunity for me to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, what's my next best step? And this is literally what I talk to folks about being allies and sort of co-conspirators is that mm-hmm. We are all allies. Each and every one of us are allies to some other community. Mm-hmm. And when you can't sort of hand the mic over, it is your responsibility to do your best to translate what you have learned, not to speak for it, not to claim it, just right. to translate it and open the door for more conversation, open the door for folks to be in the room mm-hmm. who can speak for themselves around it. And I just remember in that moment thinking, um, about how I felt in my own queer identity. Mm-hmm. And for us in our, the work, we try to center the most intentionally disconnected and historically marginalized folks. So that's trans women of color in particular. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I just kept thinking, like, I feel this way. Mm-hmm. And I cannot imagine what the additional depths of fear or stress or just um, 
helpless uh, or hopelessness really yeah, that yeah. trans folks might feel. Right. So when it, when it comes to sort of thinking about that, it, the relief, I didn't know how much I was holding on to. Mm-hmm. And this is just like one, one stretch from my identity. <laughs> I didn't realize how much I was holding on to yeah. in the Trump administration until yeah. we had confirmation that he was actually out. And yeah. it was like, oh how? Um, yeah. So yeah, just yeah. watching the news often to see um, Biden, I think there's some low-hanging fruit and just undoing the inhumane things that were done. And I will be curious to see what seeds he plants for the future to mm-hmm. actually move us forward. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for that. I mean, I, I just thought it was really compelling, um, you know, that interview, because it really brought me back to like, oh, yeah, this happened. And this was really horrifying and terrifying. Yeah. And then, you know, as someone who is a woman of color like myself mm-hmm. it's, it's just mm-hmm. like okay um you know i didn't feel safe you know um yeah when this all happened and i was just like i can't even imagine i cannot imagine how you know people who who are you know gender non-conforming who are you right. know and if this right. was my child i'd be like good lord you know it's like how can you exactly. even how can you justify, you know, what you're doing? And and there was no justification. There was just like, you know, I, well, I feel like doing this, you know, because I can't. Just yeah. right. And it's like, rhetoric. Yeah. And yeah. just harm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think even to the ways that we um, we look back. So there was a, a Supreme Court case, Loving v. Virginia, that essentially said um, laws that prohibited interracial marriage were illegal mm. and mm-hmm. unconstitutional not illegal mm-hmm. but unconstitutional and um i think about that you know they each year um they celebrate something called like loving day mm. which is um just to celebrate i think it's in june actually uh-huh. to celebrate the fact that like interracial interracial couples can, you know mm-hmm. now join and mm-hmm. we look back at that now yeah and sometimes people are like how could we have ever said yeah. The two people who love each other mm-hmm. couldn't get married right. just based on the color of the skin they can't, you know, they can't yeah. choose. And then similarly, we look back, most yeah. of us, not mm-hmm. all, but most of us look back and also say, how could we have then put that same prohibition against people who are um, sort of uh, members of the LGBT community and mm-hmm. saying that you also can't get married, right? Yeah. So I feel like we're going to continue to hit these waves right. of like, and how could we have said, if someone says, this is who I am, yeah. How could we have ever put a law that says actually no, you're not? Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, um, right. it's like fascinating, but that's what it's that kind of that's what motivates me, mm. right? When I when I mentioned this idea of like charity versus mm-hmm. justice, where mm-hmm. charity might be like, um, even though you can't legally get married, we'll still support you and have a commitment ceremony in our backyard and like hide everything, mm. you know, we'll protect you. Justice yeah. is. But why? And right. we need to change that. Right. Um, so I kind of almost look forward to this is like a weird <laughs> description to it, but I think it's true. I almost want in the future mm-hmm. to see to feel like embarrassment mm-hmm. where we are in, we've made so much progress right. that we're embarrassed that we were not here in the first place. Rather oh, yeah. than Oh yeah. You know, rather than what it feels like sometimes is like we haven't made enough progress and mm-hmm. I still feel frustrated. Yes. I want to be like, whoop, that yeah. was a crazy time. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> but look where we are now. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh wow. 
Um, all right. So another thing that I, I saw, which was um, pretty interesting, in September 2020, you were part of a panel um, for something for this um, subject titled "Imperative: The Imperative for Diversity in Fundraising." Um, how important is diversity and when it comes to fundraising? And do you think there hasn't been enough diversity when it comes to fundraising, especially for so- social justice causes? I love this question. I love this. Okay, so uh, a few quick thoughts. Okay. Quick, and I say, I say quick because I'm never quick. So a few thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> um, one, I think um, there is I think that there's a level of paternalism and I think there's a level mm. of kind of um, white saviorism mm-hmm. in the nonprofit world mm-hmm. where whether by race or gender, there's a belief of that somebody knows better mm-hmm. than the community being served. Mm-hmm. So when that is kind of inherent, and some of you might hear it as like the nonprofit industrial complex, mm-hmm. when you thrive off the need and continued really like suffering of another community and the mm. pathologizing of that. Right. There's something in there that gets a little bit twisted, right? You yeah. get into um, all sorts of things, whether that is like, we call it trauma porn. Mm. Pardon me. We call it trauma porn where it's like, let me find the most destitute, sad story to put before our major donors, to mm. put on our data right. and say, look at this sad, sad yeah. person. Yeah. And here's what we did to help them. And then right. we say, okay, now go back behind the scenes. And don't pay anything, right? Don't complain yeah. about what we're doing. Uh-huh. Don't uh-huh. give me feedback on how you I made you feel. Just right. like you got a free dinner, now go. Mm-hmm. That is extremely problematic, of course. Oh, of course. And then when it comes to um, how organizations actually um, are able to to raise these funds mm-hmm. and who gets the money, yeah, we know that. Um, I have to think about the exact that, but we know that the majority of nonprofit leaders today are actually identified as white mm. and that they are more likely to get access to um, fundraising, like from foundations, for example, mm-hmm. or major mm-hmm. donors, whether it's because they're tapping into their own networks. Mm-hmm. We know about the disparities of like uh, wealth disparities mm-hmm. in the U.S. or mm-hmm. because of the presumption mm-hmm of the validity of the process and the approach that they're able to get it. So there are a lot of studies and sort of statistical analyses that let us know Mm -hmm. um, women of color and leaders of color in general do not gain access to the same funding. Right. They have a much harder getting year over or much harder time getting year over year funding. Wow. Um, And they have a, hard time building it out but you even see this in like the venture capitalist world now Mm. um it's it is interesting to see how those how those i I call it the nonprofit industrial complex sort of um it's perpetuated Mm -hmm. i guess Mm -hmm. in that fundraising space and i think that um we see it even in leadership opportunities where it's like i'm trying to remember this exact that. I think it's um, it's fifty percent of BIPOC identified sort of uh, staff and nonprofits mm-hmm. say they aspire to be a CEO or an executive director, mm-hmm. and then like forty percent of white staff do. But we know that uh, 
I think it's 68 to 70% of all nonprofit leaders are white and like 90 plus percent of all foundation leaders, foundations who are funding these nonprofits are white. So wow. like there's this big, there is a talent pool. Uh-huh. You know, we always talk yeah. about talent pipeline. I can't find diverse talent. Yeah. It's there. They're just not being curated and developed. And so wow. then when you come, when you get the one person who finally gets the role, uh-huh. you have a set of fundraisers who don't believe mm. um, that they can do the work, even though they mm. might have just been underutilized talent. Right. And I think the other thing that sort of comes to mind is um, a lot of nonprofits, like it's hard. It mm. is hard to keep a nonprofit afloat. You mm-hmm. want to pay your team members. Hopefully mm-hmm. you're paying them um, fairly. Right. You want to provide good benefit. That is a lot of work. I got to see that firsthand in my mm-hmm. time at the center, especially. Mm-hmm. But we tend to focus on um, major donors, people who can write bigger checks and you have to tap less frequently right. um, over the smaller, more consistent donors. So like, for example, studies will show that um, women, for a lot of reasons, don't are not usually able to write as uh, big checks. But mm-hmm. once you engage them intentionally, mm-hmm. they're likely to be more consistent donors over time. Mm-hmm. And that is huge. Just, mm-hmm. you know. So it's like when we look at who has the ability to write the biggest checks the most consistently in the United States, it tends right. to be white men. Right. So then we cater a lot of our presentations, our mm-hmm. approaches, our dinners, our galas yeah. to that interest group, completely right. separating them from the user. Mm-hmm. So it's like, there's so much around diversity and equity in, um, in the approach of fundraising. And I don't, it's not a quick thing, right? We mm-hmm. live in a capitalist society, have mm-hmm. a quick fix here. Mm-hmm. But there are these ways um, that we can start to pivot the way we, again, going back to this idea of humanizing. Right. Right. Yeah. Who mm-hmm. are we serving? And our leadership teams on our staffs, our board, mm. our funders should reflect, should mirror the community. Right. Um, so like, and I think that when we start to do that, one will get more authentic engagement. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, it, hopefully, we can start to change the way fundraising looks and feels yeah, because sure. of this authentic engagement. For sure. Yeah, and I thought it was, it struck me that, huh, you were in a panel with three other men, all white, <laughs> and, <Yeah>. and then <laughs> you're the only woman of color. And I'm like, okay, what is that? pretty bad disparity right there i was like what's going on but you know and and i'm so glad that um you know i was able to ask you this question because for me it was just like it struck me like okay what how is this even possible that you know we're now in 2021 and we're still grappling with issues especially when it's supposed to be you know fundraising for causes and not because of oh well you know yeah, it's like uh, it, it's just that that doesn't relate to me. It's like, well, no, it's a human thing. It's not a. It's not supposed to be like, well, what only you can relate to. I mean, that's part of it, but at the same time, it's like you're serving people. You're serving, you know, right. people who are in need. So, but thank you for that. Um, okay, so, huh? So, is there someone? <laughs> is there someone who you would give credit to for where you are now? There is so a joke in my family is like I don't like the pros. You asked me to pick one, I pick ten. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. there's not one, but uh. there are a few people who have been um, critical to either the sort of 
direct support, mm-hmm. the emotional support, mm-hmm. or just the cheerleading, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. that's so one, my mom. Mm-hmm. My mom is like the most fierce person just in all the spaces. She we call her Mother Teresa. <laughs> right? She she is just incredibly selfless and loving and mm-hmm. generous and, and brilliant and dedicated in everything she does from being a parent to being a physician who's worked in all sectors of sort of the medical profession. Like she's just amazing. Mm -hmm. And she really was my first guide, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, to let me know that I didn't have to, my career didn't need to be linear. Mm -hmm. That like if I stuck with something I was interested in and passionate about, that I could do anything with that. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, and will always be, I mean, she's my mom, but Mm -hmm. like forever just indebted and love and appreciate her in terms of how it's impacted my professional trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have to say my wife, mm-hmm. um, who is just all the things and many things, like just loving, smart, kind, intelligent, all of that, but mm-hmm. also just um, she sees me in a way that I don't see myself. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't think I can do this. And she's mm-hmm. like, wait, <laughs> you can do this. Yeah. You are amazing. You know, yeah. like. And wow. just that confidence mm-hmm. that I don't think I would have um, been able to to describe as such. Mm-hmm. It was a, a former coworker actually, about two years after we got married, and he was like, "You know, you just walk differently." And I was like, "What are you talking mm-hmm. about?" And he was like, "Ever since you and Katie like started dating, and now you're he's like, you just have a completely different." Hmm. me in and I you know was a person who was like excuse me no one can change you know like no one changes me I do the thing but I at this point you know almost a decade in I definitely appreciate that mm-hmm. um, and I know it I just know it she has um strategically tacitly lovingly supported everything and giving me this like clear guidance mm-hmm. um and so and I say that because I have what I call like my personal board of directors, right? Mm-hmm. And these mm-hmm. are, and she's the chair. These are people who, um, including my three sisters, mm-hmm. who are <laughs> mm-hmm. there for all the things. Mm-hmm. These are folks who um, know me, like really know me, mm-hmm. and can guide me in all these different things, whether it's like, okay, I need to negotiate something, mm-hmm. um, and you can help me in this way. Or, you know what, maybe... I tend to get a lot of breath and not always enough depth. And so mm-hmm. I talk to my friends who are good at that. I'm like, what am I missing here? Mm. Or I have this idea. How does this sound? And then people who will also say like, you need to push harder, go further. You're amazing. And mm-hmm. then folks are like, bad idea. Mm-hmm. You were actually out of line. Right. Right. <laughs> you were out of line. And like, let's think about this. Wow. Um, and like, I just, when things in any aspect of my life are going in a way that is unexpected or I find challenging, I always tap the board and I'm like, help, mm-hmm. you know? And they're like, mm-hmm. we got you. And so those people, I don't know who they are, right. um, are critical. So wow. sort of my mom, my wife, my sisters, like these are the people that have shaped every part of me. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and then this board, uh, and if I can give like a quick shout, I have two delicious babies oh. that motivate me when, that. you know, like, yeah. um, we want to do better. My mm-hmm. wife and I want to do better. We try, but like you also then look and you're like, you have to do better. Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> um, of course. So they definitely, I want them, a promise my wife and I made actually thinking about Trump's election the morning after the election. Mm-hmm. We were just like wow. many people in our sort of community are like, you know, just struck. Yeah. And we made a promise 
to um, each other, but really to our then nine month old Mm -hmm. that we couldn't like let him feel that, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we had to just work. We had to prepare him for a world that might look the same, but actually work unyieldingly to make sure that it didn't. Mm -hmm. And that motivation, um, I mean, you're a parent, right? That motivation is there Mm -hmm. always. And so I can't, even sort of um, enumerate the ways that my children have changed but they are definitely a part of this journey. I love that. I love that because you have such a huge support system and very lucky. That's, that's amazing. I love that. Thank you for that. And um, so what are your personal goals? Do you have anything else that you haven't done you'd like to do? You know, going back to something I said, earlier mm-hmm. uh i'm open i mm. don't know what it is you know mm-hmm. i i really want to continue to feel excited mm-hmm. and engaged in my work mm-hmm. and i think that there are going to be times where i want to be more autonomous in that mm-hmm. and i think there are going to be times where i want to um be carried forward by the wave like i want to see what's my country what's my sort of waterfall con- uh sorry water droplet mm-hmm. contribution to the waterfall Mm. Um, and sometimes I think I want to be, um, at the bottom of the waterfall, like helping folks get out, like, all right, good job, let's keep going. You know, like, mm-hmm. um, I'm open to where, where the journey takes me, but, wow. you know, one thing is we, um, I grew up in Atlanta, lived in a few places mm-hmm. and, uh, we moved back here at the end of last year. Mm-hmm. And so I think for now, my next kind of venture is thinking like relearning my city as an adult, as a mm-hmm. parent, mm-hmm. Um, as a married working parent and what I want to bring to my family, but also what I want to contribute to the city that raised me. Mm. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. Um, so is there anything you'd like to say to the listeners? Uh, this is an amazing experience first of all just to be able to talk with you and it's like fun just to think about it so thank you for the invitation and also that uh we all can there's a concept of like i call it choice points Mm. Um, i didn't coin the term but it is the idea that we each have the chance to just reflect Mm -hmm. on where we are what we do what privilege we do or don't hold Mm -hmm. and generate ideas about how to make the world around us look a little bit different. And, and for me, that's a little more inclusive, a little mm-hmm. more affirming, a little more equitable. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that is literally where you buy your groceries mm-hmm. to who, I don't know, who the contractors you hire to like who you vote for, right? Mm-hmm. So I want to just leave with the listeners this idea of like, what are the choice points mm-hmm. that you have to think about the own revolutions that you want to start, whether it's in your home, mm-hmm. in your neighborhood, in your community at large, yeah. we actually all have a contribution here. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I think it's overwhelming when you're like, well, I can't change the system. Yeah. You know, but <sighs> what you can do maybe is just change your little bubble. Yeah. Right? Your little microcosm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's what I would love to leave with the listeners. Wow. And if you could go back in time, what would you tell your younger self? You know, I know I had an initial thought around this, but today, because mm-hmm. my mind's always moving, is um, don't be discouraged 
mm. by what seems like a, a failure or a setback or a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. Because what you can't see over the horizon is even better. Mm. Um, I think I was really hard on myself growing up. You know, I didn't make the, if I didn't get the A, mm-hmm. right? Or, mm-hmm. or just like if I didn't get the job I wanted or the score I wanted on something or mm-hmm. just the response I expected. I used to be really, really hard on myself. And I think that stifled some sort of just growth and creativity. Mm-hmm. And once I started, one, being more graceful with myself, but two, recognizing that what seemed like a failure or a missed opportunity or a mistake was actually just critical to my own path forward. Mm-hmm. And that because I don't have any regrets, honestly, mm-hmm. because everything has brought me here and I love where I am right now. Wow. Um, if I could tell myself to just not be so um, stressed and constrained and just hard on myself, um, that success looks so different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I really had a, a narrow concept of what that might be when I was younger. And now hmm. just grateful, just oh. really grateful. All of the learnings, mm-hmm. and I'll sort of say this um, quickly, but the work I do now with the title that I have now mm-hmm. um, was not like a career path per se that I would have, that I thought I was on. Mm-hmm. And it definitely wasn't something that when I was like in college, someone was like, you can work in mm-hmm. the <laughs> inclusion, right? Mm-hmm. But everything I've done, this hunt, for justice mm-hmm. um, and my own lived experience and how I've translated that into tangible work outcomes mm-hmm. has now become this thing of, well, how can you help other people do that? That's and I would have never, ever known that right. or thought that. And for a while, like my resume, I'm just doing work that I care about because my resume makes sense. Mm. And now I get to pull on experiences every day <laughs> where uh-huh. I'm like, oh, I've done that. And uh-huh. people are like, really? <laughs> yeah, you know, like, that feels amazing. Awesome. Like, I know someone, or like we could have this conversation. This is, mm-hmm. and I just would have never known that. And so I wish, again, yeah, just to have not been so hard on myself, thinking that what I was doing was not because I was driven by mission and passion, mm-hmm. and not by traditional metrics of success. I was like, well, this is not going to work. Mm-hmm. And yet, it has worked out more beautifully than I could have ever, ever, ever imagined. Oh. Wow. Shiju, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you for what you said regarding you know, everything from, you know, your experiences to where you are now and going forward. And I, I you know, I'm so glad that we got connected um, through my friend Anu and, and uh I really uh, the best. <laughs> I love her. I love her too. She's awesome. And she yeah. was so funny. She was like, you need to talk to my niece. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, she, she is yeah. such a, I, I love her. I love the, her energy and, right, and just it. who she is. So, but I re- really, I thank you so much for coming on and, um, you know, Hopefully I'll get to have you back again, um, you know, wherever you go forward. And, you know, I'll, I'll definitely uh, keep asking, you, okay, where is she now? <laughs> you know, then, so that would be amazing. Um, thank I you. I for... totally would welcome that opportunity. Thank you. Thank oh you for gosh. this work that you do and for having me. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you for all the work that you're doing and continue to do. And I, I, I'm really 
honored that you were able to say yes to this. So, all right. Um, have a good one, and I will speak with you soon. All right. All sounds right. good. Take care. Okay, you too. That's our show for today. I've posted more information about Shijuade Kadri on RevWoman.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in every Thursday for another episode of Revolutionary Woman. You can listen to Revolutionary Women on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Just a little note, I've launched a Patreon account to support the show. All proceeds will go to producing and editing the episodes to give my poor husband a break for being my personal IT and production department. He wrote this. The address is patreon.com slash revwoman.